And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. And I will read Genesis 32, verses 22 to 32. And he, that is Jacob, arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed over the ford of the Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. And he said, Why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. Therefore, on this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that you would open our ears and our minds to understand what you would have us to take away from this. And we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would fill this place, just as Pastor Kaiser prayed earlier. We thank you, Father, for your gifts to men, and we pray that you would uh, use them now, uh, pour them out upon us. In Christ's name and for his sake we pray. Amen. I believe the book of Genesis is my favorite book, and so... I've read it a lot, and yet I think it would be unfair of me to assume that everybody is as familiar with these people, and Jacob especially, as I am. And so I think it's necessary to uh, just kind of give you a summary of his life, because um, I believe that Jacob is easily the most important person in the book of Genesis. Because if you look at how much space is devoted to him, it... Uh, consumes half the book from Genesis 25 through Genesis 49 and you really only have a couple of issues that are addressed outside of him and that's Joseph going to Egypt and all that's covered in three chapters and then you have also the story of Judah and Tamar in one chapter and when you look at Joseph's life it's apparent that he is most interesting only because of the role that he plays in preserving Jacob's seed so I believe that uh, Jacob is the most important person in Genesis. Genesis is arguably the most important book of the Bible, and I would say that the text I just read is probably the most pivotal event in, J in Jacob's life. So what I'm saying is I think I probably read to you the most important part of the Bible just now. So we'll see. Now I need to begin with a summary, and this may take a few minutes, but hopefully I won't make it too boring. And I want to go all the way back to his birth, and so Jacob, the story of his birth is told in Genesis 25, starting at verse 19. And we read there, and now you, of course, know Abraham. And Abraham beget Isaac, and Isaac beget Jacob and Esau. But you also know that Abraham had 
had a son prior to Isaac. Who was that? Ishmael. And then now, too, we see another where two have come, where one was needed, perhaps. And so now we have both Jacob and Esau that are coming to carry on this seed. So we have the birth of the twins. Rebecca, they had married uh, at, at 40, I believe. Isaac was 40 when they married. He's 60. They still haven't had any children, and yet he's been in prayer for his wife, Rebecca. And now she has these twins in her womb. And yet in verse 22, it says, the children struggled together within her. And she said, if all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And then we have their birth. When her days were fulfilled to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau, which means hairy. And then Edom, which is the nation that came to be re referring to Esau's prodigy, it is red. It's the word for red. Afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob, and that means supplanter, heel grabber. So Jacob was the heel grabber amongst these twins. And you see in the very next section where they give this little brief glimpse into their childhood. So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. Now, in their day, tents were like our houses, so don't think of tents as roughing it. Tents were not roughing it then. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So you have this odd divisiveness within the family, and yet you have this promise, this prophecy that is made to Rebekah, there's no mention of Isaac here, that the younger would serve, the, that the older would serve the younger. And so it would, it would appear anyway that Isaac doesn't much care for this. Just as later, much later, when Jacob is, is blessing Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, uh, Jacob takes his hands and crosses them, and Joseph doesn't like it. He grabs his hands. No father, no father. This is the older. He says, I know, I know, but this is what God wants. So the same thing, you have Isaac here, and he doesn't appear to be comfortable with the fact that Esau is not the chosen one. So he kind of fights it, it would seem to me. And Jacob is a mama's boy. And so what dad wants the mama's boy to be the one that goes on to this uh, res respected position, this uh, bearing the seed of the multitude? Because he just kind of hangs around the tents. Whereas Esau, he's off in the hills, he's, he's uh, hunting, and he's a man's man. He's an outdoorsman. And yet you've got Jacob as the homebody, the mama's boy. So now... Esau, though, comes in from the field once, and you know the story. He's famished, and yet Jacob sees an opportunity. And he says, for the stew, sell me your birthright. And Esau says this, look, I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose, and went his way. Esau's a happy camper. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. So see, Esau might be happy. He might get back out in the woods where he wants to go. But God was displeased. 
Now Esau went on to also dishonor his parents in ways. At the end of chapter 26, we read this. When Esau was 40 years old, so now you know that Isaac is 100 because he was 60 when the boys, or at least 60 when the boys were born. Esau was 40 years old. He took his wives Judith, the daughter of Beri the Hittite, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. And they were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. So apparently Esau didn't care that he married these women, these local Canaanite Hittite women that were a grief to his parents. He didn't care. Whereas at this time, obviously, Jacob is still unmarried. And so he is living in honor of his parents, not marrying locally to these pagan women. Now, time has, passes, uh, time has passed. 27 starts. Now it came to pass when Isaac was old. So some time has passed. Isaac was 100 when we last heard of Esau marrying these two women. Now more time has passed. Isaac was old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see. He called Esau his older son and said to him, my son, and then we know about this. So now as soon as Esau goes out to hunt for wild game, Rebekah goes and grabs Jacob the homeboy and says, we are going to deceive your father. Now, is Jacob aghast at this? No. What does he say? Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, look, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I am a smooth-skinned man. So in other words, he's just pointing out the practical difficulties of fooling their de his father. And so she then covers his hands, covers his neck with his goat skins, and then they make the stew, they bring it in there, they, they deceive him. And Isaac blesses Jacob, gives the blessing to him. And then we know that Esau comes in, and the text says, as soon as Jacob left the room, Esau came in from the hunting. And so he gets the animal, and then he brings it in there. He makes the stew himself, and he brings it in. And his father, of course, is terribly shaken by this, and it says that he uh, shook uncontrollably. Isaac did. He's very upset by this, but he knows what's happened. He figures it out very quickly, and he tells him what happened. He tells him, your brother came and stole your birthright. So Esau is upset about this. And let me read to you the portion where he says, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has planted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and now look, he has taken away my blessing. And he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to him, Indeed, I have made him your master, and all his brethren I have given to him, I, all his brethren I have given to him as servants. With grain and wine I have sustained him. What shall I do now for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, Have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me, me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. So see, now, way too late, he values his birthright. He values the blessing of his father. So the very next thing he does is, in his heart, plot revenge. Yet apparently it's not only in his heart, because his mother Rebekah overhears that he's plotting to kill Jacob as soon as Isaac dies. Now we know that that doesn't happen for decades. So I don't think Esau would have waited until Isaac died. He may have gone through with it anyway. He, he said in his heart, the time for mourning my father's death will come and then I'll kill Jacob. But the mother wants to get him out of here. And what she says is, I want you to go to my brother Laban's for a few days. Now it's very far away. Yet, it's obvious that she doesn't intend for him to be there the length of time he ends up being there, 20 years. She just thinks it's going to be temporary. 
But then, at the end of that chapter, Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth, like these who are the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? So she's fed up to here with Esau and his wives and these pagan Canaanite women. So they then decide that they're going to send him to get a wife from her brother Laban in Haran. And so Isaac calls him in, tells him what he's to do, and Jacob, as an obedient uh, son, heads off. He's now going to do what it is his father told him to do. And so that's where we are up in Genesis 28, verse 10, where, and I want to read you all of this. Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed. And behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord, Jehovah, stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread about to the west and the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, and that means house of God. But the name of that city had been Luz previously. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me, and keep me in this way that I am going, and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house, and of all that you give me I will surely give a tenth to you. So he, ha he makes this conditional vow, conditioned on several things. If God will be with me, keep me in the way that I'm going, give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that he then safely returns. So it's several conditions that Jacob has made in this vow that he's given to God. So now we know he arrives at Laban's uh, territory. Uh, he sees Rachel there at the well and he ends up being with Laban for a month when Laban says, what shall be your wages? You shouldn't work for me for nothing. So obviously he had been. And Jacob said, well, I want your daughter's hand in marriage, Rachel. He loved Rachel. And so Laban said, sure, seven years. And Jacob agreed, worked seven years. So now after seven years, they have the wedding week, and yet he's deceived. So Jacob was a deceiver back home in Canaan, and now here we have him being uh, met with a rival deceiver in his uncle Laban. So Laban ends up giving him Leah, gets him drunk most likely, and, and gives him Leah. So now the next day he wakes up and here's Leah. So he goes to complain to his uncle and his uncle said, well, it's not our practice to give the younger before the older. So I'll give you Rachel as an additional wife for an additional seven years. So then he works another seven years. But after the first week, he marries both Rachel and Leah. And he gets their two maidservants, right? You had Rachel have Bilhah and you had Leah have Zilpah. So now he's got these two wives, these two servants, Leah starts having babies. And yet Leah runs through four babies, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, 
then she can't have any more babies, and Rachel's envious. She can't have any babies. She's complaining to Jacob about it, and he gets frustrated with her. Who am I in the place of God? So she said, just as uh, uh, Sarah had done with a Abraham long, long time earlier, she said, well, here, you take my maidservant Bilhah. I'll have a child through her. And so she does, and she has these two children, and they're what, Dan and Naphtali. So then... Leah can't have any more children. She's jealous of now Bilhah's maidservant, or, or Rachel's maidservant, Bilhah. She gives him Zilpah. Two more children come along. So now we have Gad and Asher. And so then Leah is, uh, basically buys Joseph, Jacob's services for the evening with her son's mandrakes because Rachel wanted them when she saw them. And she said, Reuben found these in the field. And she said, oh, I want one. Oh, now you're going to steal my mandrakes too. She says, well, I'll let you sleep with Jacob tonight. It, it, this is a very dysfunctional family, wouldn't you agree? So Jacob dutifully, apparently, sleeps with Leah that night, and she conceives. So she has another child, and another child, Issachar and Zebulun. So now you've got ten children. Leah thinks that she's by far going to be the favorite, since she's given him six boys and a girl Dinah, and probably other girls spread in there too that aren't mentioned. But so you can see that this is very unusual. Now, how much time has passed by now? 14 years plus. Because at 14 years, he wants to go. But he says, no, no, stay and work for me. So he pays them wages now. Laban is paying him wages. And the speckled, the spotted, you have both of them trying to deceive the other through this. And I believe uh, Laban would have gotten the upper hand had not God been on Jacob's side. And so at the end of 20 years, Jacob is a fairly wealthy man now. Now, he's made Laban wealthy as well, but as they've been wrestling over how to pay wages, uh, all of Jacob's always get blessed, and it's God blessing them. It's none of Jacob's deception that's paying off here. It's just God blessing him. So that's the situation we're at in Genesis 31. We have at the end of Genesis 31, uh, Laban getting angry at the situation. Oh, at the beginning, I'm sorry. Jacob heard the words of Laban's son saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's and from what our father's he has acquired all this wealth. And Jacob saw the countenance of Laban and indeed it was not favorable toward him as it had been. So Laban and his sons, their whole family is upset with Jacob for having stolen Laban's wealth. So he plots with his wives, all of his servants, to leave. They had already set three days distance between them just because their herds were so great. So while Laban and his servants went off to shear sheep, he took off. So now he's fleeing. Now also though, God had told him to go because we read that uh, God had appeared to him and told him to leave. And where is that? Um, I don't have it noted down here. But God had appeared to him and told him to leave. Oh, the Lord, yeah, verse 31.3. The Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will be with you. And so then uh, the angel of the Lord spoke to me in a dream, saying, Jacob, and I said, Here I am. And he said, Lift your eyes now and see all the rams which leap on the flocks or streaked, speddled, and gray sputtered, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. So see, God knows that Laban is trying to give as good as he's getting here. He's trying to deceive uh, Jacob. And Jacob also, though, has been trying to deceive Laban in return. But they decide to flee. They flee. And so now, though, 
Laban catches up to him and he is upset with him yet God comes to Laban in a dream and warns him saying do not touch Jacob be careful what you say to Jacob so Laban knows he's blessed he's known that all along so they part as uh, friends at least you know they build a pillar they have a piecemeal they stay the night he gets the opportunity to kiss all of his children Rachel had stolen the gods hadn't found them in her saddleback because saddlebags because she was most likely pregnant she said the way of women is with me so whether that was she was in her cycle or whether she was already pregnant with the baby that's born later it's probably that uh, because she's uh, you know she dies en route later but so now we we are at our text in 32 now we read earlier from 22 to 32 and yet I'm going to go into more depth now on verses 1 to 21 in Genesis uh, 32 so you might want to open to that I, I will stay this and sweep through now so he's back here with two companies Jacob went on his way and with the angels and the angels of God met him when Jacob saw them he said this is God's camp and he called the name of that place Mahanam or two camps and what he means is that this is his camp and it's God's camp apparently because when he showed up he saw these angels we don't we're not told here whether he actually saw these angels because his interaction with God up to this time had been through dreams but here it would seem to me that he actually saw angels this time he's awake he's alert and he sees angels now he's back here where 20 years ago he'd made this conditional vow to God and pretty much all of it has been fulfilled all of the conditions he placed upon God God met and and Jacob, I guess, had tested God in that, and God had passed the test. He had referred to this place back then as the gate of heaven, and now he refers to it as God's camp. He, he names it Mahanaim, two camps. Now, remember, he had fled from Laban, right? And the whole reason he was over in Haran was that he had fled from Esau. Fled east to Haran now he's fleeing west from Laban Laban abandons the chase they part in peace yet now he still has this enemy to reckon with his brother Esau so what does he do 32 verse 3 Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau his brother in the land of Seir the country of Edom and he commanded them saying speak thus to my Lord Esau thus your servant Jacob says I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. Jacob had snuck away 20 years ago as one person, and yet here he is returning with flocks and herds and hundreds and hundreds of animals and all these servants and, and four wives and, and 11, 12-plus children. He's not going to sneak back in. That's all I'm saying. So... He figures, I have to come clean. I have to let Esau know that I'm returning. And little does he know what response that is going to garner. So at verses uh, 6 through 8, the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he also is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two companies. And he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the other company which is left will escape. 
Now, some commentators try to make much ado about this, saying that, you know, he's not turning to God first. I don't know. I mean, to me, it seems rational what he's doing. He's uh, making wise use of his time. He's just learned that 400 men and his son, whom he, or and his brother, whom he assumes is still angry with him, is coming. And he, he must assume that there is something bad going on if he's bringing 400 men. I mean, that's just an enormous number of people. Abraham took less men with him when he saved Lot. I mean, he took 368 or something like that. So, I mean, this is a massive number of men. So, Jacob is greatly afraid and distressed. Now, let's remember, though, it was God himself in Haran that had told Jacob, return. It is time to return to the promised land, and I will do it. He will protect you. So, Jacob divides everything up into two companies for safety, and now... In verse 9, we see this prayer. And uh, some point out that this is the longest prayer in the book of Genesis, and it's Jacob's first. Then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your family, and I will deal well with you. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So now, in contrast to the vow that he'd made 20 years earlier, which was uh, conditional in so many ways, here, all of it is unconditional except for the fact that he's pointing to God what God himself has told him. He's reminding God of his promises. First, he says, O God of my father. And so he's pointing to the history that God had established with Abraham and Isaac. And he refers to that history. That is the history that he sought when he deceived Esau into giving him the birthright. And when he deceived Isaac into giving him the blessing. He wanted, he wanted that destiny. He went about getting it in all the wrong way, but he wanted it, he was hungry for it. And here he's pointing to God, O God of my father, and he reminds him of these past promises. And he says, you told me to return to my country and you would deal well with me. So he's reminding God of this promise he'd just made a few weeks earlier. But the third thing, I am not worthy of the least of your blessings. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. Because he said, I was one man crossing this Jordan 20 years ago, and here I am, or this brook 20 years ago, and here I am coming back with two companies. But then he says a very simple prayer in verse 11, deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. So he's just being very honest with God. Deliver me, I pray, I fear my brother Esau. And then he goes on to again close with the reminder that he said that you would make my descendants as the sand of the sea which cannot be numbered for multitude. And yet he sees 400 men coming after his two companies ready to destroy everything and everyone. So he reminds God of all of these promises. And then he sends these peace offerings off. So he gets servants, he takes 220 goats, sends them with a servant, 220 sheep, sends them with a servant, 30 plus camels, 50 cows, 30 donkeys, each of them in their own separate droves, and he instructs them, 
to when you arrive, if Esau sees you, you're to tell him, my Lord, uh, your brother Jacob brings you greetings. These are a gift for you. Now, Jacob had not been bragging when he sent that original messenger to go to his brother and saying, tell him that I have flocks and herds and stuff. He just wanted Esau to know that he was not coming after him for anything of his father's, of his or his father's. He just wants to be left alone. He, he doesn't want to take or steal or in any way have Esau regard him as being greedy and wanting to return for stuff. And so that is why he's also giving his animals here. It's a peace offering. As a matter of fact, uh, Proverbs 18:16 says, a man's gift makes room for him. So in other words, if you give someone a gift, you've earned the right to talk to them. Uh, just this past week, I had lunch with a fellow that I don't work with directly, but I'm dependent on him for stuff. And my director said, you'd better get a better relationship with that team because we're having trouble knowing what's going on with them. And so I bought him a lunch. And, and one of my teammates said, oh, I, I, I haven't been able to get him out to lunch. I said, well, did you offer to buy him lunch? Oh, well, no, I didn't. So a, a present like this buys time. You're buying time. So that's what he's trying to do. It's, I think it's very reasonable. It's very logical. It's not deceptive in any way. He's just trying to protect his life and his family's lives. So now, we get up to verse uh, 21, and we read this. All of these have gone over, and he says, So the present went over before him, but he himself lodged that night in the camp. Now, he still has his personal family with him on the west side of the Jabbok. Then we get finally to the text that we'd read at the beginning. So now we really start the sermon. So you can start the 45-minute counter now. So, verse 22. He arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons, and crossed over the fort of Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone. So... All of his stuff has now gone east of that little brook, yet he himself comes back without anything, just as he was 20 years earlier. He wants to be seen by God as being just as he was before, as empty of his wealth as he could be. He needed to be alone, and the very first thing you then see, then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. So see, Jacob had made himself available to God, and God jumped on the opportunity. Now, you know it's God. The title is Wrestling with God. We've read it already. I could maybe hide it from you and try to reveal that a little bit at a time, but it's pointless. So we know that this is God that he's wrestling with. But when you read the text, if you read it for the first time, you don't know what's going on. I can still remember reading that for the first time thinking, scratching my head, just what is going on? Who, why is this person wrestling with Jacob? It just seems so unusual. But you know, Genesis is filled with little mysterious unusualities like that. So he, we know too, reading the New King James, that we see man capitalized. So we know that it's a theophany. It is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here he is wrestling with Jacob. And he appears to be the aggressor because it says, and a man wrestled with him, wrestled with Jacob until the breaking of day. And so I'm thinking that it went on for at least several hours. 
Jacob, I don't think, had intended to do this early in the evening when he'd sent all the droves off and then he camps down for the night. He'd prayed and then he'd, be, he'd made camp. But I don't think he could get rest. He knew he needed to spend this time alone such that God would come and be with him. So he sent his whole family across in the middle of the night, a very odd thing to do, but yet he did it such that he could be there. So now it's probably about midnight, one, two in the morning or something when this uh, theophany comes and starts wrestling him. Now some authors are uncomfortable with this, some theologians. They want to spiritualize this. They want to say that this really didn't happen, that God doesn't do such things. This is silly. But it's right here. It's very plain. And also, in Genesis, we should be comfortable with the fact that God does this at times. He walked in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. He walked with them. He walked with Enoch, and he was not, for God took him. So we know that God did this in Genesis. He did it less and less as time went on, and after Noah's flood, and it said, and then men began to call on the name of the Lord, because you see that God was becoming more and more distant from people. But yet, he does come to this person, Jacob, and he wrestles with him. And it was a physical struggle. We know that. It talks about how he touched the joint of his hip and the Jews did not eat that until this day. They just refused to eat that socket that, that uh, the man of God touched. So it's real. Okay, verse 25. Now when he saw, capital, we know it's Jesus, when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. So even though he dislocated his hip, Jacob didn't let go. That's bizarre. I mean, that would be painful. And so in this pain, he refuses to lose his grip. And so now, obviously, Jacob knows that this is no man that he's wrestling with. Whether he knew it before, he knows it now because no simple touch would dislocate a hip it almost goes out of its way to say how gentle that must have been. So there was this infinite power that could have done whatever it wanted. So he did not prevail, though. The text says he did not prevail against Jacob. And yet, with that power, he could dislocate his hip. So obviously, he was taking it easy on Jacob, right? We have to believe that. Now, he says, let me go for the day breaks. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So Jesus said, let me go for the day breaks. I will not let you go unless you bless me. And then he says, he responds, what is your name? And again, you have to realize that in this culture, a name is everything. A name is who you are. It's your identity. It's like our social security number, I guess, huh? No. But it's your identity. It's who you are. He, and he was named Jacob for a reason. He was the supplanter. He's holding on to Esau's heel when he left the womb. And his character was consistent with that name until now, until this moment. Jacob replies, Jacob. So he admits, yes, I'm Jacob the supplanter. But yet, what does he say? He said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Now, Israel... Uh, I have it in my notes as prince with God, but also I have it as one who strives with God or even shortened to strives with God. So Israel, he, the name he gave him is very different from the name supplanter. 
that makes you seem like a thief. And in some ways, he was. And yet now he's not. Now he's given this name that reflects what he has just gone through, this wrestling with God, this striving with God. Now, he said, you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. So now, the struggle with God is right here. It's very evident to us. But what does he mean when he said, you've struggled with men and prevailed? And this is puzzling. There are many different views on this. And I can't be sure that my view is correct, but I do have one. So first, let me give you just a couple of ideas. Could it be that this is a reference to his time with Laban and the way that that all ended peaceably, right? Through God's protection, but still. Laban had chased them all that way, and then they had parted peacefully. So is that reflective of the fact that he overcame Laban? I don't think so. I don't think that's what it's referring to. Now, one writer that I read was obviously dispensational, and uh, he actually had a lot of good things to say about this text, but this one, he just said that this is some yet future event. And I thought, well, you're really destroying the integrity of the text by saying that, because... Uh, God here, Jesus, is saying, you have prevailed against men. It's a past tense thing. So now, what is it then that he has prevailed? And again, if you can, if you possibly can, you find scripture that supports scripture, that, that, that exegetes scripture. And I believe you have that in Hosea. In Hosea 12, let me read to you uh, from a, Hosea 12, starting at verse 3, speaking of Jacob. Jacob took his brother by the heel in the womb, and in his strength he struggled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him. He found him in Bethel, and there he spoke to us, meaning God, he spoke to us. That is the Lord God of hosts. The Lord is his memorable name. So this speaks of Jacob in the context of fulfilling, I believe, both. He's fulfilling the supplanting of man and the supplanting of God or the, or the uh, striving and, and overcoming God. Because with man, he said, he prevailed over his brother. Esau was the rightful heir to the promise. And yet Jacob wanted it so badly that God gave it to him because Esau spurned it. Now we know that was a prophecy, but yet it was a prophecy that still had to be fulfilled in time. And Jacob did it. Now, early on, Jacob was doing it through deception, stealing his birthright, doing it through a deception, stealing the blessing from his father Isaac. But yet God grants him that this has resulted in success, I believe. Again, I could be wrong. But it's obvious that he has prevailed over men and he has prevailed over God. He took his brother by the heel in the womb, and in his strength he struggled with God. He struggled with the angel and prevailed. So now, Jacob prevailed over Esau because Esau was present-oriented, whereas Jacob was future-oriented. He wanted that. Let me read to you from Hebrews in chapter 12, starting at verse uh, 17. You, oh, here, actually, let me move a couple of verses earlier because he's in context. He says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God 
lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. So that was when he was before Isaac, his father, and he was pleading with him for the blessing. And yet Isaac said, I gave the blessing away. I gave the blessing to your brother. Now again, I believe we must acknowledge that it isn't Jacob's deception that got him this. In other words, he was trying his own way to do his own thing. Yet God honored his hunger for this blessing. God said in Malachi 1, 1, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And so from the womb, uh, Paul refers to that in Romans 9 in a classic defense of uh, the predestination that God has given towards Jacob and Esau. Now, Jacob and Esau's characters, though, were consistent with their choices. Esau spurned his gift, his birthright, but Jacob seized it. He wanted it so badly. He wanted it so badly that he was willing to sin to try to achieve it, which is a mark against him, but it's a mark that is washed away by his prevailing with God, wanting God. And he said, you have struggled with God and prevailed. That's in uh, 28. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. So now, we've talked a little bit about how he might have prevailed over men, but my question is, how did he prevail over God? Now, I hinted at it earlier, but yes, it would appear that Christ let him win. And I agree. I think we all must agree. Yes, Christ let him win. Jesus could have defeated him at any moment in time, but he chose not to. Why? Because he was going to wrestle Jacob as long as Jacob was willing to wrestle. And he wrestled him all night until the break of day. For whatever reason, that's given as a reason for this theophany of Christ to want to get away. It's daybreak, I must leave. And yet Jacob refuses still to let him go. And he tells him, you have to bless me. I, I just can't imagine a father and his young son wrestling. And the, and the little boy just won't let go. And the dad's letting him win. Oh, you got me, you know, knocks him down. I mean, it's just such a, a lovely picture. And yet I think the picture is very similar here. And yet it's requiring all of Jacob's efforts to do this. Uh, Jesus has even caused him pain, and yet he continues hanging on to him. Christ told him to let him go, but he would not, and despite the pain, he wanted to remain embraced with Christ. Like Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. So Jacob knew the path to blessing, the path to a safe uh, trip back home to the promised land was through Christ. See, because for the longest time, and even now I believe he's coming to realize that Esau is not what stands between him and the promised land. It's God himself. When the Jews came up out of Egypt, who was it that stood in their way to get into the promised land? Was it the Canaanites? Initially, yes. But God said, don't worry about them. I'll take care of them. 
but they refused to go. And God said, okay, fine. All of you are going to die, except Joshua and Caleb. None of you get to go into the promised land. It was God himself that prevented the Jews from entering the promised land. Those that lacked faith in him. And in the same way, he's insisting that Jacob demonstrate faith before he lets him get into the promised land. So whether Jacob was converted at this point, I just don't know. But did his faith strengthen incredibly here? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Because this is where he prevailed against God. What would have happened had Jacob not clung to him? You don't know, right? That's the part of the story that was never written. What would have happened if on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus himself, in his resurrected body, is walking along with these two, and he's opening up the scriptures to them, and when they arrive at Emmaus, he made as if to go on. But they invited him in, and he stayed. So what is going on here is that Christ must be pursued, like in any loving relationship we have with anybody. He must be pursued. If you don't pursue him, he will go on to someone that wants his attention, that wants to be with him. The, one of the uh, articles that I'd read was by a man named Alexander McLaren, and he put it very simply. He said, God desires to go if we do not desire him to stay and make it clear to God that we want him in our life. Now, are we content on this earth with the pleasures and the riches that we have? Or do we have a godly discontent? Are we always seeking to be and to have a more intimate relation with God? Because if we are not seeking Him, if that's not a path of growth that we are on, that we're not pursuing, then you are saying, I'm content without you, Lord. I'm not going to seek you. You can go on. You can go on to other people that will value your presence more than me. Jesus said that it is difficult for the rich to get into heaven. And I believe in a way that's why Jacob felt it necessary to have all of his belongings go across that Jabbok so that he could just be there, be just a man ready to face God. And it's the same for us. Independent, self-sufficient people don't seek God. They don't feel they need to seek God. And yet, to the degree that we are wealthy, can make us independent and self-sufficient. So it is, it is our prayer that if we are that, if we are independent and self-sufficient, and it's interfering with God's ability to be with us because we just don't have that hunger, we ought not be independent and self-sufficient. We have to give that up. We have to do as Jacob did, cast that on the other side of the brook, go to be with God, seek that time with God. We all must have that quiet time with God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your blessings, and we thank you for your presence. And we know, Lord, that uh, 
So rarely do we truly hunger for your presence, and especially to the degree of causing pain or enduring pain in order to remain with you, as Jacob did. Uh, yet, Father, you uh, hurt us uh, only as a friend does. Uh, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And so we pray, Lord, that you would uh, hurt us, cause us to realize our need for you, that we must have a hunger for your presence in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that none of us here would be content to have you be where you are in our lives, but we want deeper, more meaningful, more uh, wholehearted devotion and uh, faithful service to you. So, Lord, we pray that you would uh, enter into this place, enter into our hearts, and guide us into a deeper relationship with you. We pray, Lord, that we would wrestle with you and that we would prevail. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.